Welcome to Dying to Ask. Um, today we're talking about happiness once again, or maybe lack thereof, because as it turns out, Americans are unhappier than ever. The University of Chicago polled people about happiness. They did this back in the summer, and a survey said Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. Only 14% of the people that they surveyed said they were really happy. Okay, now this was last summer, so I'm thinking it's probably not gotten much better since that time because, you know, look where we are. There's a lot to be unhappy about right now. I mean, I would list out everything, but that's kind of a total drag, and I'm sure there's some of the same frustrations that you have as well. By nature, I am a very positive, optimistic person, but after a year of what we've been living with, even the power of positive thinking types are kind of done with all of this. So I've become very obsessed with this concept of happiness and the science behind happiness. You probably notice I've had some similar types of guests on to talk about this subject. Well, today I have Dr. Joan Nehal on the podcast. She is a happiness expert. I mean, like a scientist in this stuff and the author of the new book, Happy is the New Healthy. She's a psychologist and Dr. Nehal says it's not a waste of time to chase happiness and she knows exactly where to find it. On this Dying to Ask what is happiness? We're going to get the clinical definition, the very simple tweaks you can do today to improve how you feel, to feel more happy. Why you need to be unhappy sometimes. In fact, it's healthy to be unhappy sometimes. And then we'll also go into the very direct link between happiness and your health. I'm going to warn you, Dr. Nihal is hilarious. <laughs> I never saw it coming. She is so funny, has some great stories, and the ability to turn a quote that I know will just stick in your mind long after this podcast ends. Dr. Joan Nihal is my guest on this week's Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I know two things. One, that phrase, I'll sleep when I'm dead, is starting to seem likely. And two, the best conversations take time. Dying to Ask is my chance to have longer, more meaningful conversations without a producer yelling rap in my ear. Personal change requires personal growth. And these days, Plan B is the new Plan A. Ready to do life bigger and better despite the Rona? This is Dying to Ask. Dr. Joan Nehal, thank you so much for joining us on the Dying to Ask podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course, you're joining us from a beautiful spot. Tell people where you are today. I'm in beautiful British Columbia. I'm in Victoria or Vancouver Island, surrounded by water and birds and daffodils, anorexic daffodils, the wee ones. <laughs> yes. It's, <laughs> it's actually spring here, which is amazing because you take a plane ride an hour and a half later, you're in Alberta, where they're bogged down with snow. Oh man. Well, that's the beauty of that part of the world, isn't it? Yes. You have so many uh, different, different things to enjoy and it's such a beautiful spot. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. And you have a new book out. Your book is called Happy is the New Healthy. Why is it called that? Why is happy the new healthy? Because happiness starts with your mental health. Your mental health and your physical health go together like a ham and cheese sandwich. You know this? So what we're talking about when you're happy is that you have more energy. It reduces your stress levels. Your immune system gets a boost. You feel energized and you feel in control of your life. 
Yeah. You're, you're, tell, tell people a little bit about your background. You're a psychologist. You've done, you've done a little bit of everything. <laughs> you've really worked with a variety of different types of people and in, in situations. Yes, I have. I mean, from forensic work in which I go to court. In fact, I will be going to court in April once more to work as expert witness in a litigation. And this is an interesting litigation that's going to happen with a patient of mine and the police system and he needs me as an expert witness. So all I'll be doing there as a forensic psychologist and I put on that little hat is going in and telling the courts what I found in my testing and in my treatment of this person. So that's a forensic hat. The clinical hat, I only work with adults. I don't work with children. And that can range from cognitive, behavioral, affective deficits. And by deficits, I mean some problems you might have with anxiety, with phobias. I tell you, just in a, as an aside, the uh, agoraphobics, and the germophobics are really happy that COVID arrived because now they get to stay at home and they are normal. You and I are crazy. You know, you want to go out? <laughs> and, you know, I told you all along, Joan, wash those hands, you know, and wash them. See, I was right all along. So those guys are thriving. <laughs> it's really funny. But I mean, levity aside, it, it's, it's just a great field to be in with positive psychology. What we're talking about is increasing your level of mental fitness. So I can move you from one level to a better level to, to flourish. So no longer are we pathologizers and saying, here comes the schizophrenic or a paranoid schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. What you're saying instead is, how can I use your strengths, your wisdom in the service of you so that you can become better, so that you can become more altruistic, so you can be all that you are intended to be. So you work with a person's potential, what you see there and you move them to it, you just facilitate that movement to a different level. It's so, so fulfilling. Yeah, well, you're certainly in, we need you this year, especially, that is for sure. When did we start um, studying happiness as a science? When did that become a thing? Well, here's the story. In 1997, Marty Seligman, who was then, uh, the, he was elected as the president of the American Psychological Association, was, his, was in his rose garden with his five-year-old and he was doing weeds, pulling out weeds and the five-year-old was taking the roses and throwing them up in there and bringing them down. And Marty, of course, tells his, his five-year-old, well, really? And he says, dad, you told me when I was five, I was not supposed to throw hissy fits. And when are you going to stop being a grouch? <laughs> so that's how the story emerged. That for him was his catalyst, not that he's a grouch. Well, that's a different story. But the point is that he, went in his keynote address, he says, we have to focus on positive psychology. We have to look at signature strengths that people have and let's use them to get people to flourish. And at the same time, we had people like Keltner, we had uh, a whole heap of them talking about things like stumbling upon happiness, Sean Acker, for instance. We had Dan Gilbert coming up with the science of happiness. And so for the first time, we were able to empirically say, these are the things that cause people to be happy. We studied happy people. What are their traits? What do they do? Can we harvest those and get people to be even a better version of themselves? Because when we find people who are happy, what are the other things that tend to come along with happiness? Are they more productive people? Are they healthier people? They're, if they're university students, they believe in the growth model. If they're adults working in the workforce, they believe in the growth model. What's that model saying with the growth IQ? Life is a struggle and I know it's going to be difficult and I know I can achieve good things from this. So it's, I get to do this, I can do this. This is what they're like. They set themselves up with small attainable goals. 
they're not perfectionists. They say to themselves, good enough. They're going to even I had some patients singing, good enough, good enough, I'm good enough. And that's important instead of the tyranny of what I call the shoulds, you know, you should be this, you should be that. No, no. Happy people want to give back. They value social connections in their personal lives, in their professional lives, with their coworkers. I had a CEO, I was working with him and I primed him for gratitude. I said to him, you know, when you go to bed tonight, think of the things you're grateful for before you go to work tomorrow. Well, then he came and saw me and he says, you know, I can't believe this. I went to work and I was praising my coworkers. I was catching them being good. I said, how interesting. So you see, that's, that's the whole thing. So they are really very interesting beings, these people. They exercise, they take care of their body, they, they take care of their minds. They don't clutter themselves with useless things. The noise, they have a way of screaming that out. So they cultivate really rich relationships. Mm -hmm. They use time affluence, believe it or not. So instead of being in a frenetic famine, wondering what next to do, they're just focusing, uh-uh, this is my time for my family. This is my time for me. This is my time for my children. This is my time for my friends. That gets rid of the epidemic of loneliness. Did you know loneliness was an epidemic? Well, I didn't until this last year, but I do now. And it is interesting to me, my mother is 82. And then I also have a teenage son. And they both described the personal peril of the pandemic in exactly the same way, which was loneliness. And I found it so interesting that two people on such opposites, opposite parts of life right now with life experience had exactly the same uh, feeling about how this last year has made them feel. And so loneliness, it, I, I think a lot of us are very aware of it. Yes, because, you know, we are social beings and we are relational beings. I am used to going to work. I go to my office. Now my work involves doing something like you, you know, being on Zoom. I'll see you mm -hmm. on Zoom. I, I'll do most of my work on Zoom now. And that is going to become more of the technology of the future. I think distance education, online education are going to be the things of the future. And we, we need to be aware of that and be flexible instead of reacting to it with fear. Embrace it. Deal with it. Deal with it by saying, okay, so I'm a bit anxious right now. What can I do about it? We're relational beings. Now the kitchen, my kitchen becomes my office. It becomes a place where people interrupt me. It becomes a place <laughs> where I to set boundaries, but they're non-existent. You know, I'm hungry right now. What's that for dinner? Well, I was actually working on a paper. Uh-huh. Okay. So, you know, we have all of these little compartments now, and they're all at home. But I teach people the power of no. And unless you're dyslexic, it's not on. When Joan says... <laughs> Stay away. I really mean you got to run if you know what's good for yourself. You know, there's certain, <laughs> certain times for and certain times for other things. And we have to understand this. And I mean, it's really hilarious because, you know, then I think to myself, you know, Joe, this is terrible, but I actually resent the fact that my husband is underfoot. You know, <laughs> how dare he? I mean, it's his house too, but I mean, I'm used right. to going to work. You go to work, and you know, I really will miss you. Bye. I know they're all there, you know, and I got to deal with the paradoxes of life. Like the minute I arrived on the planet, I swear, I asked my mother, my mother is 90 years old, bless her soul. And I said, mom, is it true that when I was a baby, I wanted independence and I wanted stability? She said, John, what are you talking about? But you were fiercely independent. Always you were that type of thinker, which got you into trouble. I said, okay. So you see, we have paradoxes in life. We want stability. We want freedom. We want marriage. We want autonomy. And those are the little gridlocks that we have to deal with in life. And they, if we work with them nicely, 
as I say, you can mm -hmm. be clinically happy. And then you add in a pandemic, Joan, and yeah. you lose you lose all those boundaries you were just talking about. And the reality is that exactly. a lot of people now say that they are very unhappy. I mean, I read a I read a poll from the University of Chicago. This was in the summer. So I'm sure it's changed even since that time, but it said that Americans are unhappier than they've been in more than 50 years with only 14% describing themselves as really happy. Does that surprise you? No, because if you look at the World Health Organization and the statistics on happiness, which is the happiest country, it's Finland. Mm -hmm. And why are those countries, the Netherlands, Finland, Denmark, all of those, and Sweden, why are they always consistently at the top? Because the people have faith in their political organizations. They construe that there is equality in their social systems and the police are there to protect them. Everyone is there working on their behalf and when they speak, things happen. So they have input. Now those are variables that I looked at, okay? And when we look at uh, loneliness, for example, the epidemic of loneliness that We've recently discovered with the pandemic, I think we need to go back three steps. Deirdre, we have to ask ourselves, what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu? What happened in World War II? How did people survive without the internet? Without yes. food? Oh yeah, and even without running water and loose yeah. that flushed. How did they do it? And if we look at the studies of life satisfaction then and life satisfaction today, it's the same. So we have IT, we've got all these wonderful things, but our level of happiness has remained the same. Why? Because I think, I mean, just to be rhetorical for a moment, I think that uh, now the things we took for granted before the pandemic are hitting us right in the face, social connection. And so in, I don't know if it's happened in your neck of the woods, it happened in Canada that we're not saying social distance, but we're saying physical distance. Mm -hmm. You can walk down the street or I can go for a run and people look at me as though I'm a running pathogen. And I go, <laughs> Oh, I didn't breathe heavily down your throat yet. And you know, I'm actually clean. <laughs> so <laughs> I was saying to people, can we not infect you with the pathogen of happiness? Can we not get you to look at things differently? Can we not? And look, it happened. People were so creative. It's so enterprising. I'm so impressed with the human condition. Do you know they've created all kinds of masks nowadays? I can wear a mask. I'm not wearing one now because I think I can't infect you. Except with yes, I, I think we're I think we're safe on Zoom. <laughs> it's our safe know. spot. You never know. You're right. <laughs> anyway, the, the thing is that people are now creating masks. I can get a Van Gogh, Starry Starry Night mask to wear. People have been enterprising. They've made games out of this pandemic, and people are learning different ways to connect with each other through Zoom. They're realizing the importance in life is something that we lost sometimes. Right. Ago. Maybe well, the, and of the village, we needed that village for connection. Now, how do we get it? Now we've got to say, okay, let's deal with it. Yeah. And a year in, I think we're also, you know, what we need is evolving as well. I know I, I found myself hitting a wall in the last month where I'm just like, I, I am done, but it doesn't matter that I am done because I am still here. <laughs> and so is everything else we're dealing with. So we're also having to try some new things. So what are some practical things that we can all try to get a little happy boost? How about doing a simple thing that I say, go on the highway to gratitude every morning, take a car ride, imaginary car ride, and ask yourself, what are the three things that I feel grateful for at this very minute? Let's write them down. 
Now, also, another thing I get people to do, because you don't want to switch it up. You don't want to do the same thing every day. Otherwise, you're going to hit a wall. How about asking yourself or visualizing that it's the year, okay, let's do it, March the 1st, 2022. How exciting. In some parts of the world, it's going to be spring. And how have I bounced forward? I don't bounce back. I bounce forward. How did I do that? What were the goals that I attained? How did I get myself in, into a zest for living? What did I appreciate? And who helped me along the way? What were some of the walls and how, just like you said, I love that word wall. I hit a wall, Joan. Okay, fine. I love that. Let's work with your wall. And what is it saying about you? And how can we get you to transform it into something nurturing for yourself? Get the point? That's, that's so exciting when you can do that because all of a sudden you say, wow, I achieved that. Okay, and who helped me? Oh, it was this one, that one, and the other. Okay, I need to say, um, I don't know about you, but I like a bubbly sometimes, okay? So, <laughs> well, how about yes, oh, I do. <laughs> are you guilty too? Okay. I am, very. So, oh, by the way, in happiness, we get rid of guilt and shame, by the way, but that's for a different talk. So let's just toast to the person who helped us who was our major cheerleader, who helped me overcome these temporary setbacks. Notice that temporary and got me to this goal, to this point. And then let me write them a gratitude letter, please. And then let me knock on their door and read it to them. Oh, wow. I've done this, you see, and it's just so moving. Who was my cheerleader? Who helped me along the way when I just wanted to give up? Just like you. I, I hit a wall and I said, enough. I, I can't deal with this. And then I realized I had choices. I get to do certain things with my life. I get to harass my mother every day by phoning her. How's it going? <laughs> she's so sharp. You know, she's now my movie reviewer. She tells me what movies to look at. I love it. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And she's so puffed up because I devoted the book to my mother, by the way. I dedicated it to her. And I said to mom, you know, you really are amazing because she picks the best movies to look at, you know? On oh, I like that. Kinds of things. So, yeah. What, what else can we do? We can savor. Savoring is such an important skill. What you love to do, savor, savoring is the act of stepping outside of yourself and experiencing whatever it is that you pick that you love. It could be a run. It could be a walk. It could be a bubble bath. It could be sitting, putting my feet up and listening to Mozart. It could be sitting with a book. Whatever it is, can I please stop myself and savor? That's, is, that, 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 is this like being in the moment or is that different it is it is totally being present so you're not thinking of me and running into the next question but you're absolutely totally transformed and transfixed in the minute you savor it you write about it you instagram it you tell a friend about it and that by the way prevents a hedonic adaptation you don't get used to it because it's always new and fresh what are you going to do tomorrow? What's fun for you tomorrow? It's, I, I think of kids, you know, when they're growing up and you're a mother too, so you know what I'm talking about. Have we arrived there yet? Have we got there? Uh, okay, yeah, pretty soon, pretty soon. And then they get there. When's the next holiday? Okay, okay. So I say to myself, well, they're no better than I. I want one too. So every day I give myself something I'm going to savor. So even this, if I lucked out on this one, it wasn't that great. I have another one for tomorrow, okay? That's wonderful. You know, it's interesting that concept of stopping and savoring something is very in conflict with the amount of multitasking many of us, many moms especially, have had to do in this last year. 
I can't think of many times that I was literally, with the exception of right at this moment, doing one thing at a time because it, there's always something else that's got to be done. There's more laundry. The kids eat 17 different lunches a day. <laughs> You're trying to figure out fourth grade math. You are constantly feeling pulled from so many different directions. To sit and do one thing at a time almost feels selfish. Okay, so here's the thing. I was uh, working with one of my patients last week, and she's the mother. She's got a six-month-old son and a three-year-old three son, and she's at home. Her husband is a surgeon. He goes to work. She is an RN, by the way. She's a nurse, but she's at home with the children. She said, Joan, I know it's important to have time for myself, but I feel so selfish doing it. I feel so guilty doing it. And I said, okay, let's just deal with the word guilt. Remember I said to you, guilt is yes. criminals. It takes away from your happiness index. It's very guilty of that. So what do you do with your guilt? First of all, guilt is an action. It's something you did or you didn't do. Deal with what it is. If it's something you feel badly about, go give an apology and stop right there. Don't explain why you behave the way you, do, you did because that's being defensive. If you're feeling guilty because you're taking some time for yourself and you feel that's being selfish because you and I were raised either Catholic or with a Protestant work ethic, take your pick, but you are going to be predestined like Pavlov's dog for guilt. And instead of jo that- Joan, I have Irish and Catholic. It's I'm over. <laughs> you know? I'm a Catholic and I'm a mother. So it's all good. So, you know, the thing is, the thing that- <laughs> the thing we have to focus on instead of that is to say, I am going to be a role model for my children. So when they grow up, they're not, I'm not going to feel badly because my mother was a scholar. She worked outside of the home. She taught, she multitasked in the home. She even baked bread. I don't bake bread. Okay. So does that, does, does that, oh, she made her own ice cream too. I forgot to tell you that. So what am I saying from scratch? What am I saying? I'm saying that was in the past. This is today. Our time has changed. It is now time for us women in particular to know that if we don't nurture ourselves, no one's going to do it for us. You can't expect your husband to be your partner, your lover, your confidant, your cheerleader, your breadwinner. Dream on. I don't see the pigs, pig, pigs flying yet on my seat. <laughs> and I have a good marriage. Why? Because I dumbed down my expectations. I didn't expect the old bloke to do all of those things. I love the guy. But what does that mean? I got used to the guy too. It's called adaptation. Do I replace him? No. What I do is I replace my <laughs> expectations. Uh, what do I expect? Do I expect to be like my mother? God forbid. No. But what I say to myself with my guilt and your guilt, you can try it on for size. Do what Joan does. It's very easy. It's called a Joanism. What I do is I say, okay, me and my guilt are going to take some time off because Freud says I'm a bad breast. When they turn out badly in life, it's all going to be my fault because I was a bad breast. I was a mother. Maybe I didn't breastfeed enough. Maybe I didn't too much. I could have a damn good time now because in the end, I'm going to get blamed anyway. So I may as well enjoy. And I'm going yes. to teach my children how they're going to love me in the future because my sons, when, when I get daughters-in-law, they will understand what it means to take time off for themselves because my sons would have learned that mother took care of herself. Mother mm -hmm. went for a manicure, mother went for a pedicure, mother get the, gets the dresses done, mother takes time to read about nothing or sometimes just sits and looks at the ocean. That's what the message is. That's what I'm teaching. The importance of putting your guilt Park it aside, may it get a parking ticket, and just take time for yourself. Oh gosh, you're gonna you're gonna be a wonderful mother-in-law. I think you'd be a hoot. I, I think so too. I told yeah. her when you know, 
the testicles dropped, you know, that time in life, I'm sure you know. <laughs> here's the deal. You don't come home pregnant or in love. You go to school, get to your education first and talk to me about it. <laughs> I love it. So yeah. on those on those days, I mean, we all have down times though, where for whatever reason, you know, you kind of ebb and flow and, and maybe you don't feel as happy. What, what do you do during some of those times? Cause you can't, I mean, can you be happy all the time? Too much happiness is a bad thing. The studies have shown, there was a study done in 2007 actually about uh, people who are too optimistic make very poor impulsive financial decisions. Hmm. Women who try to lose weight and are too optimistic have difficulty shedding the last 10 pounds. So I love that question because you, too much happiness, too much optimism is not good. In fact, that makes you superficial because, oh, it's not a problem. You know, it's okay. You don't like me, right? You know, you trivialize things that are important. So too much optimism is deadly. It's another killer of your happiness index. What is important though, is to know that to be happy, you must know sorrow. Viktor Frankl described it in the most elegant way I know of when he said, uh, what we need is to find meaning in life in the face of meaninglessness, egregious atrocities. The guy was in a concentration camp, as you know, and he developed this term called tragic optimism. Without meaning, there is no hope. Without hope, there is no meaning. So when you're having your blue days, what I say is embrace it. If you resist it, it'll pers persist like a rising fart. It will stay with you. Instead of that, what I say, yeah, my dog, you know, that happened. I took yeah. my, my colleagues to work. On it. I always took my dogs to work because I own my office, you know, so I could do this. And Piccadilly was under my desk. I'm doing a forensic assess assessment on this male, okay? I won't tell you what he was guilty of, but all of a sudden there's this fart. The patient looks at me and I'm looking at the patient and you know, he looks at me, I know what he's thinking. And I'm sniffing too, and I'm thinking, you did that? I, I'm sure my chest didn't encourage you to fart. And then I looked at him and I burst out laughing. I said, you know what? <laughs> I didn't do it. I bet you're thinking I did. He says, I didn't want to say that doctor because you're assessing me. I said, it's okay, it's a dog. <laughs> So it's okay to understand from my perspective, depression and that those blues, I get them too. Who doesn't? It's normal. If you don't, you're a sociopath. You have that, those blues. And then you just embrace it, but it's not a rising fart. You just remember my story of Piccadilly. It goes, okay? Oh. There's a time limit for it. It is not forever, but it feels like forever when you're in the vice grip of it. So stop yourself. Take a deep breath. Own the feelings. Go for a run, do something physical, and then come back at it and say, what are the things I can control? What are some of the things I can't control? And don't forget, if you're Jewish, and I have a lot of Jewish friends, I say, the power of kvitching, the power of mm. complaining. Oh, I love to complain too. Oh, come on. You know, I can just go on. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what. And then I feel okay. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's funny. And then, and then you you say to yourself, now what do I get to do? Because when you're feeling that you hit a wall, you feel trapped you feel the whole world is coming down at you and i'm in a tsunami and i can't get out i'm just drowning and you say wait what do i get to do now not what i have to do joan says you should run but no i'm not saying that i'm saying what choices do you have right now mm. so really just owning the fact that you do have choices and the biggest choice you have is how you react to something is it sounds like the most powerful thing we can do during these times when we do feel a lot of this loss 
And you have a right to understand that it's ambiguous loss as well. You know, it's ambiguous loss. It's a loss of routine. It's a loss of jobs for some people. It's a loss of health, death, our rituals, graduation. I mean, you know, we all have our traditions, christenings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. These things aren't happening the way they used to. Marriages aren't happening the way they did. And can we take it in perspective and say, yes, and I still get to do it in a different way. Mm. Look ahead. Let's say when the pandemic is over, will our will the way we look at happiness? Do you think also be different? Yes, because now for the first time we have we understand what mass mutual reliance is all about. We know about post pandemic growth is something I talk about. We know about the importance of embracing the challenge. We know about the importance of I get to connect with others. In the past, I didn't because I thought they were there all the time. I get to do random acts of kindness to people. I'm not going to make it a priority. I'm going to prime my brain every day. I want to do something kind for someone. This this morning, for example, the post, postman comes to my door and I helped her with the package that she was bringing in. Uh, yeah, my husband orders five boxes of Lavazza coffee pods. <laughs> you know, it's all good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And yet, okay, fine. But I help her with it. And that was a random act of kindness. We, we just talked for a little while and she beamed. She says, you know, it's so kind of you to take time to talk with me. I said, but wait, I have more for you. It's Easter coming up and I won't be here. So have your chocolate fix. And I gave her that. And it, that's a random act of kindness, but I'm primed to do it. I don't even think of doing it. And I don't think that there's going to be something in return for me. That's where selfishness, selfishness comes in and it's mm-hmm. all me at the expense of other people. Now we're talking about, I'm going to wear a mask. I choose to wear that mask because in doing that, I protect you. I care for you. Therefore, I'm not going to have you in my home. If people understand the reason why they're sanitizing, the reason why they're doing this, you're going to have less anxiety and more compliance. If someone sat me down and explained. But do you think do you think it will last post-pandemic? Because sometimes we, when we kind of make deals with ourselves, as soon as this ends, I will, I will never, if I lose the 10 pounds, I will never drink Coca-Cola and eat cookies all day long again. But then sometimes we start to creep back to old habits. Do you think that there will be a lasting lingering legacy of more kindness and happiness post-pandemic and of that of people just in general feeling more appreciative for their freedoms again? If you read my book, you will see that happiness is not an act, it's a habit. And it's not an easy habit. But the good news is you can learn this way of being in all of 30 days. It becomes an automatic response. So I don't think like you, I'm going for a run. I just do it. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be grateful. I'm just so grateful that I have a mother I could bug. I am so grateful I have a husband I can complain about. I'm so grateful that I'm alive that there's a sky still there. Will people understand that more in the future? You bet your, you bet your dollar they will. Will they continue to engage in unhealthy habits? You bet your dollar they will. What? <laughs> because we're human beings. Am I, are you going to tell me not to eat that chocolate bar? You must be kidding. Easter is coming, I told you. And so, you know, if I want to eat it, I'll do the Belgiums, right? Those are the best. So, you know, everything in moderation. But the thing that I teach people to do is ask yourself one little question. Is what I'm doing healthy for me? And is it it to the benefit of everyone out there? Now, look, if you answer those two questions, is it of benefit to the masses as well? It's reading a book right now, uh, Sam Keane. Sam Harris wrote the book on on religion and science and morality. And the most important point he raised recently 
is the importance of thinking of the masses, not just of yourself. And is what I'm doing going to affect the rest of the world? So when I gobble up my chocolate bar, I'm thinking, is that good for the chocolate industry? Oh yeah, I'm keeping it. <laughs> Don't you tell me about the weight. I'm going to run and run it off that way. But I always ask myself, is what I'm doing healthy for me? It does it, will it have a ripple effect on other people? And if so, will I infect them with joy? You're smiling right now. Deliberately try to smile. And I will too. Yeah. A real and, that- and guess what happens? How are you feeling? I feel happy. You got it. Me too. And guess why? Because I told you, there's a science behind all of this. What happened for you that was so exciting is you tricked your brain into releasing neurochemicals that made you feel happy. Me too. And so you're happy. Think of your posture right now. I would say you're enjoying this interview with me and I'm enjoying mine with you too. Why do you know that? Look at my face. Look at my body. Upper body, please. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you're wearing. You're hard work. But but you get the point, Yes, yes. Um, So we also have something I really enjoy teaching people about. It's called our psychological immune system. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. But but can I guess what it is? Is it is it that when we are stressed and anxious that we have physical manifestations that will seem like we are ill in ways? So like back pain, headaches, that type of thing? Yes. And blood pressure, that skyrockets, mm-hmm. even heart attack and things like that. But our psychological immune system, has, Dan Gilbert is really funny. He's, he's a professor at Harvard, okay? And Gilbert is rather iconoclastic. And he says, um, here's how it works. If you are um, making a decision that you believe is going to be permanent, you did it and I did it too. We got married. And not because I believe in serial monogamy, but because I believe this was it. Now, here's the story. Say you were single and you went to a restaurant on a hot date and the guy picks his nose. What do you say to yourself? Well, you know, I'm not going out with that guy again. But then if your husband picking his nose, you say, you know, he's a good bloke. He's so (laughs) And he just don't touch the fruitcake. Okay. It's fine. Right. So that's what happens. Dunn did, wasn't it Liz Dunn? Yeah, she was at the UBC. She did a very interesting study actually in which she gave students 40 bucks and she said, take that money, go spend it on yourself. And then she gave them another, the following day she gave them 40 bucks and said, now take that money, give it, spend it on someone else. Day three, she says to them, which act gave you more happiness? Mm. And it was spending the money on someone else. So I call that happy money. And beyond the threshold of 75K, you don't need more of it to be happy. Once you've got your food, clothes, and shelter in place, you're fine. You can take that money and spend it on things that don't last. Spend it on things like vacations, in my case, vacations. Spend it on things like a movie. Spend it on things that, like, things that will not be there forever, like an opera, like theater, even on Zoom. Don't buy things that will last because if it will, la- will last, it was like my mom when I was being raised and my dad to buy quality because it will last. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. And so, you know, there I am with the escada and the this, that, and the other in the cupboard looking at me and I'm going, I really don't like you, but it'll last. It'll last. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. I, I think we had the same mother. <laughs> 
And so, you know, oh my God, those things have got to go to the thrift store. Oh, Joan, I, I, I could seriously talk to you all day. It, you have brought great happiness to me today talking to you about this topic. It's wonderful. The book is called Happy is the New Healthy, and it's available in all the places where books are sold. What are some other ways for people to keep up with some of your research? Uh, they can go on my website, nihual.com, and they can get more information from me there. I think that's the best one. Thank you, Joan. Pleasure. Bye-bye now. How amazing is Dr. Joan Nihal? I don't know what exactly I expected today, but I, I did not expect that. And what a great surprise. She was challenging, but creative, comforting, hilarious. That was just absolutely powerful. So check out her book. It's Happy is the New Healthy. And it is available now as we all try to focus a little bit more on our happiness I sometimes take notes when the podcast is going just so that I have, um, I remember the bullet points that I want to maybe write about in the show description that shows up on your podcast platform. And I wrote down so much stuff during that episode. And one of the things that I circled was who is your cheerleader? And I think that's a really great question for us to all ask because chances are, if you're like me and maybe like a lot of other people, I'm kind of coming out of the pandemic with a smaller social circle than I went into it with. I mean, I really, because of, you know, quarantining and pods and all the rest of it, you know, I've got a handful of people that I'm I'm really kind of on the regular spending time with or chatting with. And so my cheerleader is definitely in that little group. And I think it's a really nice thing to think about reaching out to that person. Now, I don't know if I can write them a letter and go show up at their door and then read the letter to them. That might be a little bit much for me. <laughs> But I certainly could send an extra text and just say thank you for being there for me in this last year. And hopefully I've been that person for other people as well. So anyway, thank you so much to everybody who's been sharing the show as well. Certainly helps when you guys take a screen grab and share it on your social media platforms. Please tag Dr. Joan Nihal as well. And uh, if you have a guest suggestion or maybe a topic you want us to explore, I would love to do that for you. You can always just shoot me a message, DM me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is runreadsip. Thank you for listening this week and for making the show as successful as it has been lately. It's super appreciated. And I will see you next time on the next Dying to Ask.